This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have a great lawyer from Houston, Texas, Randy Sorrells. Randy, how are you doing today? I'm doing terrific, terrific. How about you? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Uh, I'm just glad to be alive, and uh, actually, right now, I'm glad to be vaccinated, uh, which is a cool thing. I can start looking forward to having life again. <laughs> One of the only times in my life being fat has ever served me or given me a benefit. <laughs> Put me in that 1B group in Texas. Um, so you just recently got a uh, a great verdict, and I wanted to have you on, not only because you've, you know, you've done very well over your career, and we can learn a lot from you, but you've also successfully tried a case uh, during the age of COVID. Uh, and I want to learn about that because I want to be trying cases uh, now during the age of COVID. And I imagine a lot of our audience does too. So tell me a little bit about yourself before we get into the case. Well, sure. I uh, came from a military background. My father was in the military, uh, grew up around the country, uh, settled in Houston, went to undergraduate at Houston Baptist University where I played soccer, then went to South Texas College of Law, Houston, and started at Fulbright and Jaworski defending uh, defending cases. It was a great three years there. Let, they let me try a bunch of cases, which is rare. Yeah. About 19 cases. Then moved over to the plaintiff's side, and now I'm uh, partners at the Soros Law Firm uh, here in Houston, Texas. And uh, the case you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, came to me about two years earlier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was a call from a New Year's Eve event at a local bar in Houston that's pretty well known and pretty popular. And Two years later, uh, the jury got to hear a few facts. Great. Well, before I get on that case, I want to talk a little bit about how you learned how to try cases. So you, back back when you started at Fulbright and Jaworski, which uh, was one of the big, huge, prominent Texas firms, and you know, national, I think it's Norton Rose Fulbright now. Yes. Uh, back then, you could actually try cases as a, as a young lawyer then, there. That firm really did emphasize uh, getting to the courthouse, small, medium, and large-sized cases, and I was really fortunate to get under, uh, they call them teams, a team that uh, went to trial representing insurance companies. And uh, when you're a young lawyer, they give you small cases that if you lose, it couldn't be too bad. So you go over there and do the very best you can. And so did you did you get any particular type of training or they just kind of parachute you in and you figure it out? Well, at South Texas Law School, where I went to school, um, I was also, also on the, the mock trial program. It's a great program. I think they felt at Fulbright I was ready to go. And so uh, they do a a uh, training program there, a, a litigation training program, and it's interesting the way they, they approach things. Uh, they take all these students from across the nation, uh, they put them in this classroom together, and uh, you have to do some actual mock trial stuff. And I'll call it the Ivy League schools who are really smart and still some of my, some of my very good friends. 
Uh, they didn't have the understanding of what to do as maybe a, a South Texas College of Law student did. And so I quickly became friends with many people. And I think this, the, uh, the law firm saw that I wanted to try cases and they gave me that opportunity. And so uh, trial and error with a little bit of education is a good, is a good way to, to go. You know, it's interesting. I started at a big New York firm, um, and I think, you know, they are all used to being the smartest person in the room, and mostly Harvard, Yale, uh, Columbia. And I think the fear of having to have non-Ivy League-educated people decide a case uh, was so great uh, that I think they would do almost anything other than try a case. And they won't admit that, but that, that was the sense, because... Very, 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 very few trials happened at that firm. And we had, at the time, an 80-lawyer litigation department in the New York office, and they may have tried, you know, two to four cases a year. Wow. Uh, now, you know, they they also, between the time I took my job, did my third-year law, law school, clerked on the Fifth Circuit, and then started, they had something called Operation Right Size, where they got rid of the partners who's... Uh, back then, it was a million dollars a year profit per partner was the was the magic number they wanted to get over. Now they're way over that now, but they got rid of all the practice areas that couldn't bill at those rates, which included the product liability defense and the other things that would have got you into the courtroom. And they were only doing like big insurance insolvencies, securities litigation, you know, mergers and acquisition type litigation, and you know that stuff doesn't get tried. It bills a lot higher, but it doesn't get tried. So it was, you know, I guess a good economic move for the firm, but you know, not so good for a young lawyer wanted. Learned how to become a trial lawyer. Absolutely. So you switched to the plaintiff side. What what's the difference do you think in, in trying a, a plaintiff's case and trying since you've done both and trying a defense case? Well, on the plaintiff side, you really have to be proactive. Uh, and if you aren't proactive, the defense can take advantage of you in two ways. Number one, they can be reactive and nothing happens to the case. And number two, they can be proactive and everything happens to the case bad for <laughs> your case. So, you know, you have to keep pushing the ball up the court or your clients and you're going to get left behind. How about actually, you know, in the courtroom trying it to a jury? What are, what are some of the differences you found between being on, you know, years ago when you were on the defense side and now that you're on, the, you know, the last few decades where you've been on the plaintiff side? Well, obviously, in a bad case for the defense side, you got to just do damage control. But most of the time, you can pick away taking shots here or there on burden of proof and didn't bring your evidence and, you can uh, really uh, amplify the lack of, of, of things that a jury might be looking for, uh, especially if you do some mock trials beforehand to point out all the things the plaintiff can't do. And as a plaintiff, you don't, you don't have a month to try a case and, and uncover every stone. So you have to pick what you think, hopefully through mock trials, what you think the jury will be uh, focused on, and uh, you know go after those. And if you're reading the jury right, then... Uh, hopefully you do well. If you're reading yeah. the wrong or you get the wrong jury, you're not going to do well. You know, and trials almost always happen because one side misevaluates the case. Yep. And I've been on both sides of that misevaluation. So luckily this last time I was on the good side of the misevaluation. <laughs> yep. Well, tell me a little about that case. Yeah, so there's a pretty, they call it a high-end bar uh, in Houston in one of the, the popular areas where bars and restaurants are. And it was a New Year's Eve, uh, December 31st, 2018 going into the 19th, uh, 2019. And uh, my young heroes, they were uh, uh, two baseball players, minor league baseball players. But more importantly, uh, in this story, I think, is because their fathers were both major league baseball players. One of them played for three different teams. He was probably the leading pitcher coming out of Texas uh, when he graduated and he went to the University of Texas. His name was Mike Capel. 
and he went on to play uh, after winning a national championship in the pros. And uh, one of his crosstown rivals was a pitcher uh, who wasn't as good, uh, who went to junior college named Roger Clements. And Roger went to San Jacinto Junior College. The next year went to the University of Texas where they became teammates, Mike and Roger, and they won that national championship together. Well, Roger developed uh, fairly quickly. They were both drafted the same year. Roger went on to a 24-year career in the, uh, in the major leagues. And Mike had a 10-year career in the major leagues. More importantly, their families became best friends. Uh, Mike's wife and he met at Roger's wedding. Uh, Roger was the, god, the godfather of uh, Connor, one of the plaintiffs, and Mike was the godfather of one of Roger's kids as well. So a close family, close-knit group, good salt-of-the-earth kids. They're, both their parents would say, you never to use our names to get by in life. You've got to make your own way. And so they were at this bar uh, when... Um, they were assaulted by, we said, the bouncers and probably the owner of the club, and, and they were hurt, and um, it got interesting after that. So uh, any idea why this event occurred? Well, we think, so the bar had a, a an occupancy rate of just under 200, and their estimation was that there were five, uh, four to 500 people in there at the time. Wow. But things were tight. Um uh, one, there was one group not, that we weren't involved with that had some uh, type of scuffle, and they were escorted out, and, and they had paid $3,000 to get in that group, and the, the owner had to give the money back, and we thought they were just angry and uh, decided to exact some punishment on people who looked like they were going to cause trouble. But the only evidence was, until one very interesting part, and I can tell you about it in a bit, yeah. uh, that um, that our guys were did nothing wrong. So. It's been an interest. It was an interesting trial, and uh, when the when the issues came up uh, involving what they could have done wrong, the jury just didn't believe those. Uh, believed our clients, uh, believed the story, believed their injuries, and uh, literally gave thirty times the, the last offer. Oh wow! And uh, I think they I think they argued the defense lawyer argued for uh, Casey to be given about uh, five hundred dollars to ice his elbow. I think he said, and a few thousand dollars. Uh, for uh, some of his suffering, and the jury gave him $960,000. And for Connor, who had a fractured skull, uh, against the defense uh, argued to minimize those, um, and the jury gave him exactly what we asked for, which was uh, $2.38 million. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a good verdict. That is. And what were their injuries? Again, you said uh, one had a fractured skull. What I mean, what all were the injuries he had? Right. So Connor Capel, who, who's now with the St. Louis Cardinals organization, he uh, was grabbed around the neck and put in a chokehold and was being carried out. And uh, someone struck him in the head with a flashlight, caused a oh, fracture wow. to his skull. He ended up having stitches. And, um, you know, the, the, the taint that goes on you when you're in Major League Baseball for being in a bar fight is not a good thing. Uh, Baseball organizations, they look at not only your on-the-field conduct, but your off-the-field conduct. He was went to a training camp uh, 10 days later, uh, an instructional camp, and, of course, he had to explain this, uh, all of this, and it just sounds like, well, here's a kid who's you know, 21 years old in a bar fight. That's not something we want, we want for our organization. And he just spent his whole life trying to live a good, upstanding life. And uh, in, in case he also was put in a chokehold, he was wrenched around his neck, uh, he was wrenched on his back. He also was hit several times with a flashlight with bruising. And they threw him out on his and landed on his throwing elbow. 
Oh, no. That caused him pain. So both of them went to the doctor immediately, uh, both to the emergency room. And, um, you know, both of them have issues of or, or had been tainted with, hey, these guys are in a bar fight. That's not a good thing. No. How about the their baseball playing ability? Any effect long term on that? Yeah, so we're not sure exactly uh, as far as Casey goes because he still complains of uh, pain in his right elbow, and we're hoping that's not the case. He's still a relatively young man. And Connor has the concern uh, because of the location of the fracture with uh, infection developing uh, that could affect his eyesight. So there's oh, a no. lot of concern. It wasn't, the jury understood the injuries and the effect it could have on these uh, young men in their professional careers. Are they both playing now or just one of them? No, right I, now, Casey is uh, back. He's a free agent. He hasn't reported yet. And Connor just reported uh, last week to the Cardinals in their spring training. Good, good. I always like a story with a happy ending where the, you know, it's not just that you got someone justice, but they get to continue having a, a useful life. You'd hate to see all those dreams destroyed because some dumbasses decided to start a bar fight. Or... Yeah, yeah. And they both, they both were excellent witnesses. Casey got his finance degree from the University of Texas. And, um, Will will end up in the business world after his baseball career. Connor, I learned a lot about baseball. When you when you're drafted out of high school, uh, one of the things they give you is a college education if you go and play. But you have four years to do it. So when his baseball career is over, he has four years. They'll pay for four years, and he'll get his college education. He's also a good high school student. He'll get his college degree after his baseball career is over as well. I didn't know that. I've always uh, honestly, that's one thing that's always bothered me about baseball is that they're drafting kids out of high school, and you know. No one, you know, Tom Brady is an aberration, but most professional athletes have a limited lifespan. Um, and most people that go get drafted never really make it all the way to make a ton of money in the majors. So it's That's it's right. good to hear that they that they do take care of them. Yeah, no, that is. It's good. Uh, the organizations were understanding, but each of the, the two young men had to make calls to explain the next day. Yeah. It's not a call you want to make. Both Roger Clemens and Mike Capel, the two major league players, said, Connor's injuries were something they'd never seen in professional baseball. That's how bad they were. Oh. And uh, how did you then investigate this case to figure out what happened? Well, we wrote him. We wrote him. I got hired fairly quickly because uh, one of the stories is is that um, the when when Connor was thrown out, it happened right in front of two police officers, and one of the police officers was a sergeant who was there the first his first night on the job. He saw the extent of injuries and he started an investigation. And that investigation proved to be very valuable because um, Connor went in and identified the only uh, bouncer uh, that met uh, that met the description that he had. And what wasn't known is that the owner also met the same description that the owner had left. Uh, so uh, that night they went back to Roger's house. Uh, Roger sent Connor, his godson, to the emergency room and then went back with his other son, Casey, to make sure that the police did investigate. Uh, and they did. And um, the police chief of Houston just happened to be on duty that night. So that the top cop in Houston was there. Uh, he showed up at the scene and told Roger uh, that, listen, uh, you're going to need to get a lawyer and just handle this. And, and you know, let's get let, let's handle this through the court system, which Roger wanted to do anyway. But more importantly, they had already called their lawyer. Concrete Cowboy had already called a lawyer. So we were on the case pretty quick. We sent a letter. Uh, putting them on notice, and the letter we got in return was, uh, number one, uh, your your young men cause problems, and number two, you probably owe us damages. We're not paying you a dime. <laughs> there you go. Well, that makes it easy to get started. That's yeah. got to be pretty cool, though, to get someone like Roger Clemens calling you to want to hire you as a lawyer. Yes, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm 
fortunate and, and in a lot of regards, and uh, I take that as an honor. But as you, Mike, you know, you same thing. The, the person who has the equal amount of the negative side of the of the uh, equation, they need good representation too, and, and you know, we take them all seriously. And I think that's why they they hired us, knowing we're going to do a good job, whoever we represent. Yeah. So from there, you know, the police do an initial investigation. Uh, what do you do to, to try to preserve evidence and, and prove what happened? Well, again, one of the keys to the case is we said save your videotapes. Uh, save your camera, the, the camera material. Well, it turned out bad for them because they told the police, uh, because Connor actually went in and identified the only person he thought met the description. That was the wrong person, as it turns out. And the bouncer said it was the wrong person. They had this on tape. And the police officer said, okay, let me see the tape. And they took him back to the office. They opened the door. They closed the door in his face. And they came out 10 minutes later and said, sorry that the tapes, uh, the videos don't record. They were live streams. Ah, uh, yeah, right. The officer testified that it was very suspicious. And that was a pretty crucial part of the case to know that this really could have been caught on tape. Either our guys were telling the truth or they weren't telling the truth. Um, and uh, I guess no video ever was, was ever produced. The video that was produced because people have cameras. Yeah. Um, it was produced outside, and it helped us, again, win our case, showing that, number one, Connor was legitimately hurt, and number two, when the scuffle occurred earlier, Connor wasn't involved because he was caught on the on tape not in the scuffle. So it was good. It was really a, uh, a lot of good things fall together, and you know that when yeah. you, you try a case and you get a, a successful verdict. Was the video you got, was that from the bar, their surveillance, or was it other people's video that took it on their cell phones? Yeah, it was other people. Another guy had hit his, uh, within 10 minutes of this, had his skull fractured and was thrown out on the street. And someone was uh, videotaping him when Connor was caught in the background, uh, actually looking for his girlfriend's cell phone. So just a huge break to show Connor was not involved in that other event. And how did you get, how did you end up finding that video? Well, as you can imagine, when uh, you know someone with the name of Clements in Houston gets involved in a in a bar incident, uh, word gets around pretty quickly. Um, this other person, the first person who was hurt, he also was innocent. And uh, when the media caught the attention of, that Roger Clements' son was involved, someone reached out and says, "We have a tape that can help you." Oh and wow! That helped. Yeah, it's it is amazing how much stuff is being captured on video nowadays. I mean, we get videos of the crash and explosion case where. You know, I, I think it's disgusting, actually. But one of the coworkers actually had video of the. There's still fire in the background. There's still smoke coming off my poor client, and he's putting on social media. Yeah. But uh, it was incredibly helpful in the case. It just it was really bothering to me that you would tape that such a thing, but and post it. But you know, I guess we all react differently. Uh, but I think that is so important nowadays is to try to reach out and get people's. A video. Absolutely. And I do. I think people have become so reactive to videoing. I agree with you. 20 years ago, no one would do it. But today, it's just natural, second nature to bring out your camera and turn on your video. Absolutely. And it's and it's helpful. It really is. I'm, I know even on that, I don't know, are you involved at all in that big Fort Worth 100-something car pileup? Well, I've not seen any cases yet, but I've yeah. seen video from it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a member of a truck driver Facebook group. Uh, I don't know why they let me in, but they did. And, you know, quite a few truck drivers had vid their own dash cam video that they put up showing other wrecks that were not stuff I saw in the news or anywhere else. Wow. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not involved in any of those cases. Uh, but if anyone is, uh, you know, you want to go look through truck driver groups online, uh, 
because there's all kinds of crazy stuff that, that it, it's really eye opening. If you do any trucking work, you should you should get involved or get on. Don't post. Don't don't out yourself. Be quiet. <laughs> but the more truck driver forums and uh, in groups you can join, uh, the crazy. I mean, they're they're videoing while they're driving all the time. It's crazy. Uh, and that's a great tip. I'm, I'm glad you said yeah. that. And, uh, you know, if you can find out, you know, who people post as and see what they've posted before, it's, it's absolutely insane. That's a great tip. I hope, yeah. I hope uh, those plaintiff and defense lawyers who listen to this uh, take, take uh, heed of that advice. Great idea. Except the defense lawyers in my cases just forget I said that. No. <laughs> it, it goes both ways sometimes on the. Well, they're always after us. I think they, yeah. they, they look at the plaintiff's social media first and then they put an yeah. investigator on them second. So I agree. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to Delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. So you ended up having to try the case. Uh, tell me, what, what, are, what was it like? Was it a live, pers- live trial, a Zoom trial? How, how were you all doing it there in, in Houston? And I think it's going to happen across the nation unless we're going to get so far behind. So in Houston, we had access to um, where we play football. There's a stadium. Or there's a, a big convention area that's spread out. And we picked the jury over there, not at the courthouse. Live in person, 65-person panel. Uh, everybody had their own individual speaker and own individual headset because you're so spread out. Um, and a typical voir dire, we had a judge who – was excellent. She's the co-chair of the Harris County, which is where Houston is, Harris County Judicial COVID Task Force to get jury on track. We're behind in Houston because of the hurricane a couple of years ago has pushed us behind. Um, And that's a whole other story. And they just have to get get things going here. From there, we came back to the courthouse. We were in a big courtroom and the jurors don't sit in the jury box. They sit out where the audience would sit. There's a limitation on how many people can be in the courtroom. And so your connection with the jurors is is much more minimal uh, than what you are used to experiencing with a jury. Uh, the witness sat in the jury box. Uh, and so then the judge sat where she would normally sit. And the lawyers, of course, had to turn around. Uh, lots of technology. There's lots of Clorox wipes. If you, if you stood up and moved around, you had to have a mat face mask on. If you sat in the same place, you could take your face mask off, but you had to have a shield. Uh, the case was... Uh, was well watched because it was on Zoom uh, and it was live. Uh, it was live streamed, and so uh, more than hundreds of people watched it, probably in the thousands, uh, and got lots of feedback. And they're refining the system. And one of the great takeaways from is it's a great educational tool. Uh, where I never thought about the cameras uh, on and never played to the cameras. I know some might, but people said I had my office watch it, my lawyers watch it to see here's what a real trial looks like. Yeah. And then law schools can watch it as well. And so there's some real benefits that came out of it. But it's definitely not the same old trial you're used to. So what do you think, you know, the effect was, you know, net effect was with the on the jurors of, of you know, face masks, distancing, uh, face shields, 
the threat of COVID in the air. Right. Well, so the judge more dired on that uh, because not all witnesses came live. And, and that's another point. We had witnesses by Zoom and she more dired on you have to accept some people can come and some people can't because under the uh, quarantine rules, some people couldn't leave their house and they needed to testify. And so she made it a point to make sure it's very safe. We talked to the jurors afterwards. They all seemed they liked the experience a lot. They were very appreciative. It was a 10-2 verdict, so I wasn't able to convince everybody. But I got uh, you got enough. Got enough, uh, and that was good. Uh, the defense lawyers, they did a great job, I thought. Uh, it could have very well been a punitive damage case. And I think they uh, kept the punitives down. But, you know, uh, when you have those punitive damage type facts, that often uh, gets you the actual values that you deserve. And, and that helped there for sure. How did you make sure the jurors could see? I'm I'm hopefully gonna I'm set for a live trial in Zavala County, Texas, Crystal City, at the end of the month. And one of the things I'm struggling with, and I was supposed to do a, a live trial uh, in January, in I'm sorry, in February in Harris County. We we were set. We did all our pretrial back in uh, November, and then after four hours of pretrial, the the defense started. I don't know. I, I think they got scared because they suddenly had all these scheduling issues with their experts and convinced the judge to give them another couple months after they'd already announced ready. Uh, but uh, we were getting ready to try it. And then unfortunately for my client, unfortunately for me, it resolved uh, right before we're going to start. But how do you get people to see things? I mean, you've got a much, you know, bigger spread out jury pool. So like a poster that would work just fine in front of the jury box won't work there. How did you get them to see? Well, that's a really good, a good point because the, the, Courtroom had, for live stream purposes, two huge screens on each side of the jury, of the uh, gallery. So they could see exhibits. And they had one big screen back by the judge, so we could see things as well. But um, remember, you, if you're, you're pretty much stuck in your seat with, your, with a face shield. And I think I was a little bit too stuck there. If you get up and move around, you got to put a face mask on. I did not know how that would play. But on the second and a half day of trial, I'd say... We started on a Monday, the the the, uh, the evidence. By Tuesday afternoon, I just felt too contained, and I got up and put my mask on, and the jurors sat up in their chairs. So I don't know that things oh. much. And I wrote on whiteboards, and it was fine. Evidence, though, cannot be handed to the jury. If any evidence is handed to a witness, it has to be wiped down. Uh, if we were going to send back uh, evidence, we had to do we'd have to do properly sanitized juror notebooks with evidence in it. Of course, some evidence is introduced pre, pre-trial and some of it is not. So we decided not to do that because you can't hand out, you know, 12 pieces to put in their, in their uh, notebook, you know, if you've proven up a picture or whatever it is. So that's a bit different. And the, the, the evidence that went back to the jury uh, at the end of trial was all on a disc. And the four person was the only person that could operate the, the uh, computer to put, uh, to put the evidence out. So that's something else different. Do you think you got any... You know, you've done a lot of, I'm sure you've tried tons of cases in the Harris County, Houston, Texas. Uh, did you feel like your jury pool was any different because of COVID? Yeah, the answer is no. And in, in fact, I was scared about that because early on, it was felt that maybe it was a conservative leaning jury pool. But when we went over there and we picked our jury on January 26th, started the evidence on February 1st, very diverse, well-represented, well-rounded group of Harris County citizens. So whatever they did this last time, uh, it worked. And in Harris County, again, we're Houston. We have a livestock show for the juniors 
the kids. So it stopped jury trials because that's where they, they have the livestock show where the jury selection is from mid-February to mid-April. But the county has committed to coming back with a lot more trials, uh, a lot more jury panels, a lot more pools being picked. And hopefully from April to October, where, where they've got it set up, we're going to see a lot more uh, action in Harris County. I'm, I'm so happy because, uh, you know, the, there are counties that where the courts just aren't doing anything uh, around, around the country, not just in Texas. And they're just they're just throwing up their hands until we have a cure and everyone, everyone, you know, everyone's vaccinated and we're back to normal. Uh, and there's counties that are being proactive. And, and, and I see the difference on my, you know, we have a limited nationwide, but more of a statewide practice. Uh, we do some out of out of the state stuff, but the the counties where we don't have trials, I'm being asked for a COVID discount. I'm not getting I'm not getting good settlement offers. Uh, whereas the counties that have trials now, uh, we're able to hold time. We're not giving settlement COVID discounts anywhere. Although I have some clients that, you know, frankly don't want to wait for two or three years to get their case resolved. But uh, those cases are moving. I've been trying to get one tried. I'm hoping that uh, that. You know, I've got two set this month. I'm hoping one of them will go yeah. uh, just because I want to try a case. I mean, what I t- told my lawyers at the firm, I said, you know, I was in years past, I'd started to say, you know, I'm, I want to try to get involved in the better cases. You all can try the ones that aren't so great. And now I'm saying, I don't care if it's a dog <laughs> of a case. I don't care if we're going to lose. I just want to go try a case again. It's been a year. Uh, when else, like a Zoom trial, when else am I going to be able to try a case by Zoom? It's a new experience. So whether it's a good case, a bad case, I just want to get in there and try a case, you know? Well, I think that in this instance, I had more mediators call me and, and say thank you than anything because you're right about the COVID discount. They can't get uh, defense lawyers to move because, number one, they thought you'll never get a trial, which we yeah. have in Harris County. Number two, you're not going to get big money. And we use it to our advantage. People who have been in COVID for a year, they understand how it now a little change affects your life. And we use it to the advantage to say, Look, people do suffer when you have what they call relatively minor injuries. They can change your life. And we as plaintiff's lawyers need to uh, understand and use that judo law, as we like to say. Yeah. Use what's hurt us, use it to help us. And I think that was a, a, an interesting point that we made with the jurors. So what were the things that you that you pointed out to get a seven-figure verdict on people that could go back and play professional sports? Um, yeah, that was a challenge because, as I said, Connor was at an instructional camp 10 days later. That same month, uh, Casey had uh, he went to he went to the University of Texas as well. As I mentioned, Roger went to the University of Texas, and both father and son played in the University of Texas alumni game. Roger pitched an inning, and uh, Casey played. So that was uh, prominently told uh, to us many times by the defense. But uh, both Roger and Mike, in common sense, would tell you that uh, your off-field conduct is going to be a factor uh, on this. And it could be as well as their injuries. And so the juries really could, the jurors really could connect with uh, how this, and these were both excellent witnesses. Casey and Connor were not what the defense first tried to portray them as these are kids from well off families that thought that they were entitled. They came off as anything but entitled. No one used their, they didn't use their names in the police report or their fathers. Uh, you didn't see anything about that is look, we got wrongfully assaulted. You know, we can't let this slide under the rug. Maybe because their fathers were who they were, maybe they didn't let it slide under the rug. But they said, you know, we're going to push this to the forefront because someone else could get hurt. And in fact, two other people were assaulted that night. So uh, I, I think that uh, both Connor and Casey were brave to, to take this case on. And, and I was, uh, was lucky to help them out. Yeah, you know, my gut tells me that 
they got a better reaction from the jury going on with their lives and pursuing their dreams than they would have had they sat home and said, well, this ruined everything. I'm entitled to I'm, the millions I would have made on my baseball career. I mean, yeah. fighters. We, and we ours was a purely non-economic damage case. We did not submit medical bills, and we did not submit any loss of earning capacity. So it was purely disfigurement, uh, pain and suffering, and impairment. What are the kind of the, the differences when your client or your client's family is famous? I mean, that in, in Houston, jurors are going to know who Roger Clemens is. Um, right. Well, so Roger got to, he was our third witness. He got to tell his story uh, of his life and what people don't know about him. His father died when he was nine years old. He was raised by his mother and his grandmother. They had no money. When Roger played baseball in high school, he would, he would get the bus there to school but because the bus was gone after school, he'd have to run home, and he would jog home three miles every day, which helped strengthen him. Yeah. Coming out of high school, he was not well sought after. He went to junior college, and but he grew a bunch of that first year of college, and he blossomed into a star. And, of course, he, he's given back to the community in Houston and every city he's played in, in Boston and New York and in Toronto as well, with foundational money. So we showed him as who he was not something that people have maybe seen in other areas. But the defense said, hey, we want to talk to you about these allegations of steroids, and we want to talk to you about some of the things that happened in your life. Well, Roger testified in front of Congress. He could handle those defense lawyers just fine. <laughs> and uh, I think in the end, it was one of the great lines after the defense lawyer uh, tried to beat up on him a little bit. Uh, one of the funny stories was when he, when the defense lawyer came into the courtroom the first time, he went up and said, Hey, I'm a big fan of yours. You know, it's really nice to meet you. Then on cross-examination, he tried to beat up on him. And uh, I pointed out on redirect, I said, now, I want to ask you about one last thing. When the defense lawyer came up to you, what did he say to you at first? He said, he goes, well, I'm a big fan of yours. I said, well, okay, that's great. And the defense lawyer always wanted to get the last word. And he says, Mr. Clemens, did you take offense to any of these questions? He goes, no, sir, I did not. He goes, well, I want to tell you one thing. I am a big fan of yours. You're a hell of a baseball player. Uh, no further questions. And that's the way the questioning of Mr. Clemens ended. So it, it just turned out great. Yeah, can't have it both ways. <laughs> yeah. Are you interested in attending Cowan's Big Rig Boot Camp? This year, we'll be hosting the seminar in San Antonio, Texas on May 20th, 2021. In-person seating is available, but will be limited per state guidelines in order to provide a safe event. And if you'd like to attend virtually, we'll be offering another professionally produced seminar available via Zoom. For more information, visit www.bigrigbootcamp.com to sign up for our mailing list and find out details as soon as they're available. So do you, have you represented other kind of, you know, high profile or celebrity clients? Yeah, my first one uh, early on in my career uh, of all people to get rear-ended, Ozzy Osbourne was traveling the uh, the uh, freeways of Paris County in a taxi cab, and a plumbing truck came and rear-ended him. Oh, really? Gave, gave him a pretty good jolt, and you would think that uh, you know a rear-ender wouldn't cost too much. Well, Ozzy was on tour, and one of the things that Ozzy did was he would headbang. And this, we took his deposition, his wife's deposition, Sharon at the time, and I didn't know what headbanging was. And that's when you violently move your head up and down, up and down, up and down. But, I mean, really violently. And he couldn't headbang. So oh, we wow. had to cancel, he had to cancel three concerts uh, in a row, and those aren't cheap. It's not like missing three days at work for you and me. Uh, it's, it was, they were very expensive. It was an exciting case. Uh, uh, they ended up having to pay much more than they ever wanted to pay because they had a commercial policy. 
with a guy with whiplash and the, the insurance company was facing trial. Uh, and like you, they said, okay, we're not taking a risk on this one. Well, when I, growing up, I was a huge uh, sport fan. So that's uh, <laughs> my junior high school and high school days were his, where he, you know, he had left Black Sabbath and then kind of fallen down and Sharon found him and so kind of sober, sobered him up at least enough to, to record <laughs> again. And uh, the old Blizzard of Oz phase uh, was, yeah. was my back when I had a mullet and <laughs> long, long time ago. We went out to California to prepare him for deposition. So I, I met with him for a couple hours. We got lunch brought in. Sharon was terrific. Uh, she was going to be a great witness. Ozzy, I was a little worried about. And so I said, you know, we were aside one point. I said, you know, uh, Ozzy, I'm a little concerned. These questions are going to be important that you get them right about, you know, the effect it has on you and your career uh, or, or, or in that. And it did have an effect because when people miss shows, there's a presumption, just like in baseball, well, they must be on drugs or something yeah. wrong is happening. Not he has a whiplash injury. And he pulled me aside and with all the straight face, he said, Mr. Soros, you don't worry about me. Uh, I will take care of this. And I thought, this guy just used to being on stage. And he gave a great deposition. He gave a great deposition. No, he's an incredible performer. But even at this age, I mean, he moves. He moves. I mean, so I could see that even like a neck strain would make a big difference in the way he... No, it's legitimate. I mean, it was... They got slammed pretty hard. All of us would be hurt. It's just the effect of on us. We probably could come and sit in front of our desk and work at the computer, but he couldn't do his job. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just always fascinating me the 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 tension when you're representing someone that's famous between the jury being starstruck and wanting to do something big, but them also thinking, well, they don't need the money. You yeah. know, this this person has more money than I'm going to make. You know, makes more money in it and doing one concert than I want to make my whole career. You know, why should I give them any? So, I mean, how do you handle that? Well, you got to do the best you can with, with the Clements right after that, you know, they pulled out because everything's on social media. Uh, you know, three days later, Casey and Roger and the whole family went to Hawaii and they said they were on a vacation. Well, as it turns out, Roger was doing a charity event, uh, for a children's network over in Hawaii and he happened to take his family. And Casey had been working with his, with his father's uh, foundation for years before this as the social media director. So that kind of backfired, but they do throw that in. Yeah. You know, uh, you, oh, it's so bad, hurt. You're off on vacation in Hawaii. You know, one of those things. What did you do to prepare for this trial? Uh, I heard you talk about mock trials before. Did you do any kind of jury research or? In, in this instance, I did not uh, because um, we. I talked to so many people about it. What's important and what's not. So I guess in the sense, I did a, a an informal one, but we didn't bring one in. I know people are doing mock trials in COVID. But I, I have not, I used to do them before every case. I didn't do it in this one and, and I still recommend it, but it turned out fine. And what people said would be important, I think was important. It's interesting. The, the range I've seen, you know, doing this podcast, I've got to talk to a lot of the top trial lawyers and you, you meet with people that do, you know, tons and tons of jury research and tons of focus groups and surveys. And then I, you know, did one with, Benedict Morelli out of uh, New York. I don't know if you know who he is. Yeah. Uh, he didn't do any. <laughs> he just talks to people and, you know, and has all these incredible verdicts. And yeah. so I'm, I'm, I think you just have to do the work somehow. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that there's any particular method that's other than just working really hard and really working on your case that, that seems to be the, uh, the magic formula. And you never know. The two, I said two jurors were against us. One of the jurors, again, Connor was, put in a chokehold, uh, taken four bouncers, took him out in front of a police officer. The police officer saw this. Someone struck him with a flashlight. He had bruises all over his chest. And one of the jurors said, 
I, the against us. I think he probably tripped or stumbled and people stepped on him and kicked him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, you got a police officer who testifies, you watch him get thrown out. And so even with your best words, you're not going to convince everybody. I wonder what that, what that, where that comes from. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I just, uh, people have the, you know, their, their vision is uh, here. And if you try to get out here, they're, they're, unfortunately, their, their tunnel vision is just not something that they can, they have the capacity to get away from. So other than trying cases, another thing you've done is you were president of our state bar in Texas. Yes, I was the first president from uh, Houston a long, long time. Uh, first plaintiff's lawyer, board certified president uh, in the state bar. Although we've had some plaintiff's lawyers doing it. Uh, I say double board certified because one of my friends is a, is a board certified lawyer. And it's a year or two or three of your life that does take you away from your practice. Um but it was pretty fulfilling. You get back to the profession. You meet a lot of people. You try to keep your skills sharp. Uh, you have to be nice to everybody. And, and that's not a bad thing. I do think that I was nice to the defense lawyers, and they were nice to me. And that made it more pleasant. Because, um, you know, you, you can't be an ugly bar president and ugly to people. And I think it probably made me a better lawyer as well. I don't let things bother me too much uh, about the defense lawyers bringing things up. Um you know, you, you think on your feet a lot because you get asked questions as a bar president. Not everybody's a fan of the state bar of whatever state you're in. So, yeah. And lawyers don't mind telling you when they you know, they got a complaint or a problem. So you got to think on your feet a little bit. But it was a great year. And I think it maybe maybe made me a better trial lawyer. How did you prepare financially to have to spend a year or more mainly being an unpaid bar president rather than? Uh, yeah. Well, my wife would say I paid with my time because I didn't. I really. Uh, love representing clients. I love going to trial. I've tried two cases during my year as bar president. Oh, you did? Yeah. I mean, I just love to do that. And uh, she would say instead of an eight or 10 hour day, you'd make it a 16 or 17 hour day. And that's true. But I thought I had the endurance to do it for a year. And it turns out that the bar presidency is from June to June. Well, COVID hit in, in March. And so all the travel and the uh, uh, going around meeting people in it in March so I had a shortened bar year, uh, but I still got to talk to people and you, you get out and reach people by Zoom. Um, uh, but also the cases slowed down in March. And so things figured out, we got to get things moving. The courts figured out, we got to get things moving again. Yep. Uh, you've recently gone out and uh, started your own firm again. Yeah. Is this the first time with your own firm? My first time. So I, I joined out of this, I clerked at the Abraham Watkins Law Firm when I was in law school. And when I came on board, I was hired by them uh, three years out of, after Fulbright and Jaworski. And the firm was, uh, partners were leaving right and left. And uh, they allowed me to basically get up and start managing the firm at a very young age. Uh, I built the firm up to a, you know, a really great point. I, all of my former partners are people I hired, and I think they're uh, terrific people and terrific lawyers. An opportunity came up at the end of last year. Uh, to open a Houston office for uh, uh, for another firm outside the city, I think with the bar recognition, state bar recognition uh, that I had gained, and uh, started talking to them. And then the trial, the Clemens trial, put things on hold. Came back. Uh, the trial did get a lot of publicity. I have to admit um, that was a factor in saying, "Hey, we can do our own thing." Uh, my name's known around the state. We made the announcement. The phone hasn't stopped ringing, so I'm very oh, good appreciative. You know, I, I'm. I started telling you my dad was in the army. Uh, nothing is taken for granted on any blessings that have ever happened or any phone calls or any clients. 
Every everything is appreciated, and, and like you, I know because I've seen you with your clients. You know, you you want to do the very best you can for each and every client. That is one thing I've really done. You know, we're friends on social media, and you know, most lawyers really tout when they do something big. And and you had something. I mean, you had this huge trial that we probably all would have heard about on the media, whether you touted or not. But you often talk about getting policy limits on a minimal, you know, thirty thousand dollar policy case, which. You know, frankly, you don't even need to do those cases. At this point. I mean, you have a reputation where you could just do big cases if you wanted. Uh, why is it that you that you share those results too? Well, I think it's important because uh, number one, those people need lawyers as well. And uh, I, I do. You know, I sometimes look back and say, I see some lawyers just say, "Well, I'm just going to focus on cases where it's a million dollars or more because you got to put your time there." And I think that's great if they do that, and that's their their chosen uh, lot. I get satisfaction out of helping a client, you know, who who was rear-ended and is not Ozzy Osbourne and needs a little bit of help. I have a great staff. You know, I do think that turns into better business because people know you're fair with them and you answer their phone calls. I give people my cell phone number. I, I call them back. They know I may call late at night, but they'll take my call and they appreciate that. And if there's you're looking for a you know, monetary gain, it's every year it seems like more businesses come in. This year is going to be a record year for me. Okay. Uh, and it's going to be because I, I swear it's helping the little guys and not just the big guys, the little cases and not just the big cases. And it's also personal satisfaction. Of, it's like doing state bar work. It's, it's something you can give back and help people with. I bet some of those clients feel good to see it, too. I mean, the, the, the they're not forgotten. I mean, I think sometimes clients feel like if they don't have the mega case that their lawyer doesn't really care about them. Yeah. Some people ask it, but you know what's in most people's mind? Are you going to pass me off to a junior associate? And I always say, we're going to be as a team, and you can call me anytime, and I'm going to know what's going on in your case. And the team of people I put together for the new firm, uh, very smart, uh, very hardworking, and committed to the same level of customer service that I am. Well, oh, man, I hope you really do well. The one thing that I've just firmly came to believe, there's plenty uh, there's plenty out there for all of us. There, you know, there's, there's no lack of uh, success available to all of us. And, uh, you know, I hope that you do incredibly well with your new firm. And that's how I'm like, I'm like with you. I hope that you get, if I don't get the case, I hope you get it and do great for your client. I hope you get huge verdicts because big verdicts are good for everybody. Yep. If we're getting small verdicts, they're bad for everybody. If we get lawyers like yourself who go out and do get the, the get the big verdicts, that drives up the, the, the value. And most more important, the insurance company's understanding that, listen, things can happen. In the Clements yep. case, we made a demand for the policy limits of a million dollars. They laughed at us. Uh, they, they, not, I don't mean the lawyers. I don't, I don't mean to, to in any way right. disparage the lawyers because I have the utmost respect for them. Uh, but the insurance company who controlled the money did. They offered us $125,000 and, you know, we got, uh, 3.25 million, I think, when it was all said and done, um, uh, out of it. And it's a clean trial. Um, we have joint and several liability against two defendants. We have a Stowers case uh, that's, you know, in the works now. And um, and for those of you out of state, Stowers is our kind of version of insurance company negligence slash bad faith, where if you gave the insurance a chance, a company a chance to settle within the policy limits and they don't, then you have a chance of getting them for more. Yeah, and, and hopefully that will, will work out uh, for us as well. And in this instance, I had clients who really did not need the money. They deserved the money. Right. Had they not been hurt and not been in this, they wouldn't have needed the money. Um, but they were also raised by two sets of parents who were you know, also firmly grounded. 
uh, and made sure that their kids knew that where you come from is from the father of someone who grew up without a dad and from a baseball player being Mike, who did not have the career that Roger had. He spent 10 years in the, in the pros. Probably seven of those were in the minor league. He said he was a journey, a journeyman, uh, minor leaguer, but there's not glory there. And no. I'm sure his kids, they, they, Roger has three, three, four boys. Mike has three boys. They made sure all their boys knew that uh, you, you have to work hard to, to get somewhere in life. Yeah. Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. So during the break, you were telling me uh, about a great story that happened with one of the defense witnesses. Yeah, it was really one of the highlights of the, end, of the, of the trial, and it was at the end. The defense called as their star witness a six foot seven, 350-pound bouncer from the bar, but who had a great personality. I mean, a big personality. He would tell everyone. He told the jurors how helpful he was and how nothing bad would ever happen there, and people were nice folks there, and, and the owner was a good guy. And I think he was the owner's new best friend, in fact. So here's the star witness. And when they passed the witness, I asked uh, the jury to be excused because I wanted to ask about his criminal history. And that's one of the things that the judge had said we had to do outside the presence of the jury. So I asked him, I said, listen, have you ever been convicted of a crime in the last 10 years? He said, no, I haven't. So I said, well, I don't understand because I'm seeing this uh, warrant out for your arrest. He said, well, that was from Mississippi because that was taken care of. It was on probation. I said, well, on probation, then you must have been convicted of something. He said, well, yes, I was. It was for felony fleeing uh, from police officer. I said, okay, well, when when was it? Six years ago. Well, that's within the 10 years. So uh, the judge says, yeah, what do you think, Mr. Defense lawyer? And the defense lawyer is really good. He said, if he wants to do that, that's great. And what he was thinking was, I was going to beat up on this guy, this African-American from Mississippi who fled the police, maybe in fear of his own life. And, and I decided not to do that. So when we came back, I asked a few, several more questions and I came around to his criminal background check because we had, we had already told the, we'd already convinced the jury that they were hiring convicted felons. So I said, did you do a, did they get a criminal background check on you? And he said, no, they didn't. I said, okay, well, did you mention anything to him? He says, yes, I told him about my, my, uh, my conviction of fleeing from the, fleeing from the police. I said, okay, well, I understand that. That's good. And I waited for a lot, a lot longer than normal, probably 10 seconds, which is a long time, as you know. And I said, well, let me ask you this. What's that you're wearing around your ankle? Is that an <laughs> ankle monitor? And he paused. And he said, well, yes, it is. It's because I have to stay away from my wife a certain distance. And it's to make sure I'm not close to my wife. <laughs> now, remember, this is an assault case. So I left it at that. And yeah. in the closing argument, I said, you know, and about this witness, he was a nice guy, but I assure you, he is not wearing that ankle monitor so they can find him to give him the husband of the year award. You know, <laughs> you, know you can't really believe this guy. Yeah. And sure, the jury said that they did not believe him after that. It was, a, it was a really funny moment that he did not think anybody would see the ankle monitor, and, and, and we saw it. That's, that's, that's great. That's, that's just proof that you need to keep your eyes open and take the gifts you get in the trial. Because there's always something that you never expected that you get when you're in there. Yeah, it was. And uh, 
the defense lawyer said to me, he, he had uh, great things to say about him and, and before the loss, and he had and he had great things to say about me after the loss. So, and I said great things about him, but he was one of the the uh, true gentlemen of the uh, of the courtroom and and uh, enjoyed trying the case against him. Well, congratulations on that great verdict, uh, and I um, hope you continue to have incredible success with your firm. If someone listening wants to get a hold of you either to ask you about something or maybe you know bring you in on a case or talk to you about a case, what's the best way to, for people to find you? Well, of course, I have to say an email address. They won't remember it, So, uh, but I'll say it anyway. And I'll yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, too. So, Okay, sure, sure. My email address is randy, R-A-N-D-Y, at sorrelslaw.com, two R's, one L, sorrelslaw.com, or call my cell phone, which, like I said, I give to everybody, 713-582-8005. And when I traveled around the state talking to lawyers, I always gave my cell phone out, and people said, well, this is a present that you know we can relate to, and I think we as lawyers, if we can always remember that our job is to relate to as many people as possible, that's going to bring you success in the courtroom and outside the courtroom as well. And so I really appreciate you uh, having me on and sharing a story or two about the case. And thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, Sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.